What's up, y'all? I'm Otillo. And I'm Mike. And we are on Patreon. Get on the bus, you guys. Get your bus pass. We put out an additional episode every week where we answer questions from you. Or sometimes we may just get off on a tangent about something important or cool that happened that day or a couple days ago yeah it's Otiel and i catching up and you are invited so if you head to patreon.com slash comes a time pod uh you can join us uh you can get the bus pass we have some incredible merch coming soon uh we've got a lot of great surprises so uh we would love to have you guys head on over yes most of all we want to connect with you so uh get on the bus y'all What's up? Welcome back to Comes a Time. I'm Mike. I'm Oteal. Welcome back. This time we have a really good one. One of my favorite people on earth and one of my teachers, a banjo teacher, Mr. Tony Trishka. Uh, he is like an encyclopedia of the banjo and such a sweetheart. His story really caught me off guard it's really great doing these because i know these guys but then when we get into these like long form conversations i learned so much more about them because usually we're like getting right okay what song are we going to play when you're sitting in or blah or what yeah. i have a lesson and we like dive deep and just like you know finding out well i don't even want to give it away it's uh it was just amazing but he has some great things to say about the uh african roots of banjo yeah, and the African, uh, the the African American uh, roots of country and bluegrass, and uh, really just a fascinating conversation. And he played some cool stuff yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. This one was a little. You get a little bonus, but you know what else too? You know what I love about everybody that we've had on, is that everyone has passion, and everybody is so genuinely in love with the thing that makes them who they are. And this one personifies that to the nth degree. I mean, he's so incredibly, like he showed up on Zoom. <laughs> he showed up just ready to go and, and gave us more than we could have asked for. And again, like all the others that we've had, that's definitely like, we're gonna have him back. We, did, we barely scratched the surface. So uh, sure. you know how many people can say that they taught Bela Fleck? banjo <laughs> probably not many i mean the history of the of the the bluegrass festivals and i mean just the the lessons about cuz look traveling and being on the road like you and i have done professionally and also recreationally like you know there's a there's a history of america that you learn on the road and and hearing him and talking about going to some of these first festivals and where you know jerry and grisman got together at those and yeah. where people everyone was trying to find bill uh, simmons right yeah <laughs> and and it's just wild how it all just kind of comes together like that and uh but yeah it's a great one we don't want to ruin it there's so much great stuff thank you guys for listening and thank you for uh your continued support and please support all of the great podcasts at osirispod.com our brother and sister podcasts uh tons of very talented people in our family so and head over and like us, review us, rate us. Uh, Bill Monroe. What the hell am I talking about, Bill Simmons? Oh, I was like, he knows a bluegrass guy? I don't know. Bill Monroe. Shit. Yeah. Hey, you know <laughs> what? Perfectly imperfect. That's what this podcast is. We love you guys. Peace. <laughs> hey, Osiris listeners. 
We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey, Tony, good to have you. What's happening, man? Uh, it's great to be here, Mike and Oteil. Just a huge pleasure. Like, hunkered down in Fairlawn, New Jersey here, and you guys are elsewhere. <laughs> That's right. How's this quarantine been going for you? It's been going actually pretty well. Uh, our kids moved back home. Uh, they were both in Brooklyn, and at the height of things in New York, it seemed like not yeah. a good place to be. So thought our kids would never come back, and they're back. For the most part, kind of in and out a little bit, but mostly back, which is great. I got the heck out of Queens as fast as possible, too. When it, uh, that was scary. Yeah, where did you end up? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little north. I'm, uh, I'm north of the city right now in yeah, okay. southern Connecticut area. But, uh, yeah, I got out of there as quick. Otiel was in New York for the, uh, the brothers at the Garden about a week or so before it all got really, really heavy. Yeah. Well, I promptly caught the virus, me and my wife, came back and gave it to both kids. But we all had an easy time of it, you know. So. You had it. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, all of us had it. But it wasn't bad. I've had other flus that were worse. And uh, so in a way, it's kind of been a blessing where I can, I feel like I can relax. I don't know if it's a false sense of security, but. Yeah, you I haven't know. figured that out yet. But yeah, you seem like you're probably pretty secure. Yeah, I'm. I'm amazed that your kids moved back home. And you're happy about it. Most people would be like, <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say, you know, 97% of the time it's been great. We've we've had a couple of moments, but you know, under one roof for you know five months, and uh, yeah, but no, it's it's for the most part it's actually worked out. And my mother-in-law lives upstairs from us. Holy cow. Yeah, which I used to tell that to people, and they'd say, and yeah, but she's the greatest. <laughs> so the food around here, my wife's an amazing cook. My mother-in-law's an amazing cook. You go upstairs at the end of the night. She stays up very late. You go up at like 1, 2 in the morning, and whatever they had for dinner is sitting up there. Oh, eat, 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 you know. One of those oh, things. wow. It's That's a great way to lose weight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everybody's got their quarantine weight on. <laughs> we had two. I had. I kept the place in in Queens for work for comedy, and then the minute this hit, I moved back in full time with my wife for the first time in eight years. We we got married, and then kind of, you know, I was like, I'll see you in a, in a decade or two, and. Uh, 
we'd catch up in between, but yeah, moving back in with family is, uh, whoo. Yeah. It's fun. It's like, all right, I, uh, I got to remember how to be around other people. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because nice. right now, uh, my son's in Brooklyn. He's, he's back at this place he stays at sometimes. And my daughter has a place there and my wife's gone off with her last night. So it's me alone in the house. It's like, wow, I haven't experienced this in years. <laughs> kind of weird, but at least you guys are keeping me company. So that's nice. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We're here for you. Well, quarantine's kind of good for it. Uh, musicians banjo players i mean i see the picks on your fingers so you're it's like sure i'll sit around and practice banjo all day what a drag <laughs> yeah <laughs> have you been uh doing any live performances like via zoom and all that kind of stuff yeah i, I did about 11 what my son named quarantoni and uh <laughs> that's what i saw that. yeah most thursday nights i was doing that i took a one off here and there but um doing it with some friends and then mostly solo a little bit with my son. So between that and then I've got this online banjo school, no plug, just I, I have that and I've got to be working that every day. And so that keeps my chops up. And well, we definitely about- want to plug your, we want to do yeah. all plugs. What is the banjo school? It's the Tony Trishka school of banjo. I don't know how we came up with that name. And it's uh, oh, the TTSB. Yeah, TTSB. Exactly <laughs> what we call it, as a matter of fact. And it's with a company in Napa called um, Artist Works, and they they haven't burned to the ground yet, so they seem to be okay. But anyway, yeah. so I, I, I'm left-handed, and I've been uh, Amazon and Google searching left hand. I have my I play my guitar, my acoustic guitar, but uh, I've been looking up banjos and mandolins to start left-handed playing. But I've never, uh, the only time I've ever played a banjo is when one was around and being passed around. Right. It's never a lefty. No, <laughs> so I know. It's, it's very hard to play that lefty. It's harder to play a banjo lefty. It's left much harder. Uh, if we get around to it, there's a woman named Elizabeth Cotton who did a song called Freight Train, a very famous folk song. And she played banjo. And she played banjo upside down and backwards. And I can't even imagine how she did oh that. Oh, my God. Because, you know, you got this... You've got this short string up the side here. Like a guitar, you can string it backwards. Right. A nut might be a problem, but it's not. Banjo, you've got to get a whole different neck or learn how to play right-handed. So. I think she, uh, didn't she have a song, something about sugary, that's like a Grateful Dead song, too, that I think they derived from her? Could have been. It was Elizabeth been. Cotton. It I've got to go back and look now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jerry so, did Freight Train with uh, Grisman and on Not For Kids Only, I believe. That's the did. same song. The Garcia Grisman thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I listen to that. I'm 40 years old. I listen to that when I go to sleep at night still. That and it's Reckoning back super. to back, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah, that's no, an amazing album. I, we got that for our kids and, you know, try to bring them up right. <laughs> that's what I and, now and my son particularly is a big Dead fan, so he watches you all the time with the O'Teal. <laughs> I love it. I love on, it. on your channel, the O'Teal channel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you you know that I did get pretty heavily into banjo when my wife moved to Africa. Yes, and uh, I remember. I ended up calling you. I forget how I even ended up getting in touch with you. One of your people called me. Huh? Yeah. But anyway, it's all a blur now. When she moved away, I could just—it was like so yeah. depressing. And the banjo kind of saved my life. And uh, you really 
kind of saved my life too. And, and your website, you were such a big help to me learning about it. How, how did you end up? Cause you're from New York, right? Syracuse. From, Syracuse. Yes. Mike, yeah. So how did you end up getting into banjo being all the way up there? Well, I was, um, I grew up in the uh, late fifties, early sixties during the folk scare, as they say, <laughs> <laughs> the Kingston Trio, the Limelighters, the Brothers Four, the Highwaymen, all these, all these groups, and um, and the very first album I ever got for Christmas, I mean, ever got period, but it was for Christmas, like in '61 or '62, was the Kingston Trio at large, and there was a song on there called MTA, and there was a banjo solo on there that flipped me out, it, and I'd been playing folk guitar uh, before that, and. Uh, and believe it or not, writing protest songs, because uh, my parents were very left. I was a red diaper baby, so my parents were very left wing. <laughs> we even had the red FBI sniffing baby. around, which I was very proud of to hear that many years later. But um, anyway, so uh, I'd be going to these core meetings at the age of 12. Core was the Congress on Racial yeah. Equality, local, yeah. the local chapter, and writing songs about those four young girls that were killed in uh, mm -hmm. In Georgia, was it? Wherever that was. Alabama. In Alabama. There, right I lived there for 18 years, Birmingham, Alabama. I know where that church is. Yeah. So I was like amazingly socially aware at the age of 12, wow. but then I discovered the banjo and, and sort of went off in that direction instead. But it was the song, the MTA, which I could play the solo for. Should I do that? Sure. Uh, sure. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sitting here with a banjo. A treat. Okay, it's, I'm, my face is going away. My beard may stay. Yes, yes, keep the beard. So this is the solo. Do I have to be in tune for this? I guess so. that made me play the banjo that wow. dominant seven gotcha it killed me it just <laughs> wiped me out and forced me to play the banjo for the rest of my life against my better judgment so anyway, did, you, did you know it was the banjo when you heard it or were you like oh my god what is that i need to find you know uh, i think i did know because i was into folk music already yeah. so i knew i knew about banjos and you know and it was round and it had this white, this cool white head and that weird short string on the side. Uh, so yeah, I was I was aware of the banjo, but it was uh, it was an it was an epiphany, shall we say? That's one of the craziest like only could happen in America stories. Red diaper baby, twelve <laughs> years old, is like in the Congress of Racial Equality. Heard a song. <laughs> Went off into the banjo. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I, know, you know? I know. My father was a physics professor, and you know, Syracuse, New York. What are the chances? And, Dad, I want yeah. to be a banjo player. No, son, you'll never. No. <laughs> my parents are pretty cool. They bought me my they bought me my first two banjos, and they supported me to do it. Actually, oh, that's awesome. They're, yeah. Well, that kind of sort of answers, I guess, in a roundabout way, one of the questions that I have for you, because, you know, when I got into banjo, I lived in the Deep South for a really long time. Right. Uh, probably 30 years and played with a lot of bluegrass cats from the South in Georgia, 
Tennessee. Right. And, uh, but then there's all these contingent of like Northern banjo players, many of whom are Jewish. And I'm like, how are these Jewish banjo players from New York? Like, like what is the, what's the connection? So maybe that was a kind of the folk, although with Bela, he said it was here in Beverly Hill, Hillbillies. Right. And it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, it would be the Beverly Hillbillies or dueling banjos or there's some one thing, you know, or these days more Steve Martin. People hear him doing his, you know, my hero. With Martin Short or doing his own thing with his Steve Canyon Rangers. And I always loved, I loved uh, you know, the jerk. And then they go to see him and then he's playing all his banjo music. And wow. He yeah. was, but yeah, this is like way back in the day. And I'm thinking about like with Bill Keith and yeah. And I know there's all these guys up there that were like, you know, uh, there was two streams, really, you know, the southern and northern one, although they were definitely connected musically. And that's kind of why I wanted to ask you about, like, how they are separate and how they're connected to, you know. Wow. That's I mean, I know it's a huge loaded question, but. Well, like, I, I, like you hear stories about, like, how Garcia and Gristman met at, like, they traveled each way to go to a bluegrass festival, right? So, like, back in the old, in those days, was there quite a bit of festivals? The first three-day bluegrass festival was in 1965 in Fincastle, Virginia. It was called the Roanoke Bluegrass Festival, and I was fortunate enough to have seen an ad in the Sing Out magazine for this festival with Bill Monroe and the Stanley Brothers and Jimmy Martin and all the main guys. And uh, we just got in our VW and drove, you know, from Syracuse or whatever it was, 10 hours or 11 hours to this festival. And there are all these guys that we've been listening to walking around. Wow. uh, It was pretty exciting. So 65 was the first one. Wow. And then they had one the next year and then uh, in the same place, then Berryville, Virginia in 67. This started proliferating after that. And then in the early 70s, it became um, a haven for, since all the rock festivals were were, uh, shut down, uh, they started, you know, all the, you know, the hippies and the motorcycle gangs, in addition to the, to the uh, bluegrass fans, would show up at these festivals, these bluegrass festivals. And there was a guy named Jim Clark who put on Peace, Love, and Bluegrass Festivals. And he would have Red Allen, who was this really traditional bluegrass guy from Dayton, Ohio. And he came out on stage in front of this fairly diverse audience and said, first words out of his mouth, I smoked marijuana last night. <laughs> just wanted to, you know, engender himself to the audience. And so there were, there were all these bluegrass fans, but the guy booked B.B. King also. So, wow. the festival. So it was like this crazy potpourri of, of uh, hats, shall we say. But anyway, so going to that first festival, and especially in the 68, 69, with hair down to here, you go to these festivals, we're all there to hear bluegrass, but it was the redneck hippie kind of divide. And, uh, you know, people kind of look at you sideways, but, you know, we're all in this, doing this together. So music somehow brings everyone yeah, closer. Yeah. So it was like literally like from the very first one, just like a collision. And then it all kind of worked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, at first everyone had short hair, you know, I mean, yeah. I entered the banjo contest there and um, Ralph Stanley and Bill Monroe's banjo player and uh, a guy named Bill Emerson who played with Jimmy. Well, hello there. <laughs> Nigel hey, just busted in our pocket. <laughs> Finally getting to meet your family. It's a Hello. Zoom bomb. <laughs> <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> Bye. You got to go back to school, dude. He's at recess. 
<laughs> oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. No, hey, it's, it's quarantine. It's quarantine, <laughs> of course. Maybe I, should I think that's off. really cool, though, that it, that it all kind of just like you just had to hit the ground running, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, uh, it's really that way. You know, you get lawyers from the north, you get farmers from the south. And this is, I mean, that's obviously stereotypical, but yeah. that kind of division, but not division, because again, we were all loving the music and there was no tension really. It was just, okay, we're all different, but it works. Yeah. I found that when I was down south because I, you know, the, I had heard bluegrass before, but it was like another country to me, the south in general, right. just like it might as well have been in Tibet or whatever. Yeah. You know? And then when I went down there and I, you know, the first cats I met were like Matt Mundy and Scott Vestal and, um, <laughs> you're very lucky to meet them. I know, but I thought, you know, these were my very first guys that I ever saw play bluegrass live and they were astounding. Yeah. You know, Jeff Autry and I was just like, who are these people? You know, like, and, and I met so many bluegrass, bluegrass players that were clearly not racist at all. Right. You know, and I, course i came of the you know the the people that i was hanging out with were influenced obviously by you know bill monroe and all the traditional stuff but this was also post newgrass revival right you know which is where it sounds like what was happening there is what birthed that you know the hippies meet bluegrassers and then it just explodes into this other thing and then yeah newgrass and bela and all that so yeah. is that where you met bela at at those festivals no, um, if I can diverge for one second. No, go for it. Question. Just an interesting point, talking about how we, everything worked out, you know, that first Bluegrass Festival. I remember we took a little break in the action, went out to get lunch somewhere in Roanoke, I think it was. Maybe, maybe it was a town of Fincastle. It was a small town, so it was probably Fincastle. And we go there, and there's this African-American guy just kind of waiting for a bus, leaning against the telephone pole. And on the telephone pole is a, an ad for a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan. And it was whoa, like, whoa, geez. we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Syracuse anymore. So that was just, you know, that just under the surface that was going on. Yeah. Just his reality is to stand it up. Yeah. Well, it's always going on just under the surface. Uh, I think yeah, people are now just starting to realize that black people have been saying this the whole time. They're like, no, this didn't go away, y'all. It just kind of oh, went man. in the closet, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I got to ask you about something later on related to that, which is actually something. Anyway, for sure, if you if you remember it, oh, I'll you can ask me now. We go tangents. Life is all in the tangents, as Yorma says. All right. Well, this has to do with my album. All the artwork has to be done like by tomorrow or the next day, and so this is. I'm, there's one track I have to know if I should keep it in or not, and I'm asking various people's opinions. So. I started writing this story about a riverboat gambler and I put it to a Jimmy Rogers blue yodel kind of motif. And so I just, you know, wrote the lyrics and then the music was already there. And then it, over time I changed the music, but it started there. And then bottom line, it developed into the civil war story. And, and I have this um, story about an enslaved, I went to this slave graveyard in Nashville, North Carolina, which totally, you know, and pardon the sixties phrase, um, and that gave me a whole entrance into the African-American part of the story that I wanted to have in there. And then I found this video online of these Civil War 
survivors of the Battle of Gettysburg reuniting in 1938, 75 years after the battle. And FDR was there and gave a speech about, you know, we're, uh, they were, we were all under separate flags, now we're under one flag now. And, and I thought, what a great thing. It would be like this healing aspect of the album. And I wrote a song about it called This Favored Land, which is this Lincoln phrase that I was going was gonna to name the album. And then at the end, um, I got John Lithgow to recite part of that speech, the FDR speech. And then just, and that's, has been on the album for a long time. But given the current climate, you know, I checked out. So these Confederate soldiers didn't suddenly, we were wrong about slavery. This was all a big, no, we see your point of view now. Yeah. It wasn't like that. It's just like yeah. what you're talking about. Under the surface, they shook hands across this, you know, in the same place where they were fighting, they shook hands over the stone wall <laughs> when they were, the average age was like 92. And it, like, it's an amazing yeah. video. You know, and this, okay, yeah. that we're coming together, but really not. And so I'm trying to figure out, should I put this on the album or not? You know, it, like, I, and this is just my opinion, you know, it's always, uh, and I'm, I'm more pessimistic than people. Like, I can't even say what I'm really thinking politically right now because it's just not uh, yeah. constructive. <laughs> yeah. But there are my feelings, you know what I mean? So, I like, the way I feel is, like, my, my knee-jerk reaction would be to say no. But, you know, my it's your album, and, and far be it for me to advise you to give up hope. I haven't totally given it up because I'm still here. And so it's yeah. nice, like, you know, but inside my head, just being honest, like, I know what a racist FDR was. I know, yeah. like, you know, a lot of these things that he did to help, you know, uh, after the Depression, it was like, didn't apply to uh, people that worked in other people's homes or farmers or stuff. So that's like, like most of the black people right there. You right. Know, they're not going to get benefits of all this yeah but um at the same time i th i would say yeah leave it in because we gotta have hope man we gotta shoot for it. it's like the constitution and the bill of rights and all that i can say yeah it was a total sham but you know if that's what we're shooting for that's a good thing to, to keep shooting for it you know i mean i have decided back and forth for the last three days to keep it out but the album is now <laughs> called shall we hope which is a quote from this uh, enslaved woman from, she was the first black woman to write a book of poems published in the 1830s yeah. or something. And that phrase was in there. So, yeah. So and I think there is some of it, you know, there, it, it made, it's like the majority of it seems like that's not the case. Like we don't feel like we're all under one flag, but you know, one of the amazing things about meeting Matt Mundy and Scott Vessel and Jeff Audrey, all these guys was that, I realized there was this common root, like when Jeff Mosier was telling me about the African roots of the banjo and, you know, and then when I learned about the, the old black guy, is Arnold Schwartz, is that his name? It taught Bill Monroe? Arnold Schultz. Oh, Schultz. Arnold yeah. Schultz. And then, you know, you see, oh, well, Jimmy Rogers, there's actually a recording with him and Louis Armstrong. Right. And there's like, you know, uh, there's all these connections that blacks and whites had since the beginning and um and it's there's always been non-racist whites in the deep south 
Right. You know, like Jimmy Carter's mom, who appointed the first black postmaster in Plains, Georgia, and mm. nobody could say shit to her because their family's buried in the old cemetery of the the founders. And so if you're in that cemetery, you can't say shit to him. She was like, yeah, I did it. You know what I mean? It's like he's the best guy for the job. You just don't expect that's happening. But right. there's always this, you know, there's always this, this uh, core of people that are getting along and that are, you know, but unfortunately the, the larger number is not that, but we got to hold to that thing. It's always a, a, the smaller group of people that push things forward. Right. You know, and yeah. so, yeah. And it seems like music and art are the ways that we can transcend that, that barrier, right? I mean, that's how it seems to me like that's when we can, it doesn't matter who, like, what or who. But we've got to, we got to also, like, try to deal with it, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> and we've, we've always been, like, escaping it or, like, you know, oh, we got a black president now. It's fixed now, right? Yeah, right. It's so, post-racial period. Yeah, it's like, it's no. It's the whole damn thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for your input on that. I Now I'm even more confused, so that's great. <laughs> no, I, but my, my answer is yes, keep it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, because we're always going to be confused. Right. So if we have to go with what's right, you know, and what should we shoot for? Right. You know, that, I mean, that's how I feel about it. That's, I thought about that when I heard that, when yeah. I listened to it. Right. I was like, well, that didn't work out, you know. Yeah. But it's not over yet. Right. So let's keep shooting for it. You and that's me are sitting cool. here and, you know. Yeah, that's sort of what the whole project's about. Again, it's called Shall We Hope? And it's sort of like, even things suck in a lot of ways. It's got to keep pushing. To me, it's like a bluegrass opera. Like when I, I've, I kept seeing this, I was like, is this like the soundtrack for a stage play? Because I would love to go see this play on Broadway. You know? wow. <laughs> I mean, it, it feels like that when you're listening to it. It feels like you're watching a movie or watching a play. It's really, really... Uh, well done thank you really well done Appreciate you know that. you said you were working on it for like 11 years i was like whoa yeah i mean the first idea started about 11 years ago and it's been transmogrifying since then right down to yesterday and today it's still uh should we keep this <laughs> we take this out i thought it was done but anyway so it's never done until it goes to be mastered <laughs> when you're like oh, i want to change it <laughs> i've heard you talk about your love of bob dylan and uh, how big of an influence is it that that's you and your son play Dylan tunes together? Is that, is that what I heard? Like maybe you had said, um, or you do a, you're a, a family of Dylan fans. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in looking at that and in looking at the way that you, you know, write your tunes and stuff, I mean, he was such an incredible storyteller as well. So, right. I mean, is there a certain era that you like, are you a fan of the old protest Dylan or are you uh a fan of all of it? I'm a fan of all of it. Like the, uh, the latest album, I think is incredible. Yeah. Right. You know, that recent, which came out, whatever, two months ago, right down to, you know, his very first album. Um, my very first banjo teacher was a guy named John Gaines, who, uh, was at, around in the village, uh, but moved up to Syracuse and my parents had to get me a banjo teacher cause I was desperate for a banjo teacher. And met, I met this guy, John Gaines, who showed me the claw hammer style as opposed to the picking style, which is more of this rhythmic kind of playing. And um, I went to his apartment and there's this album in the corner by a guy named Bob Dylan, 
which I mean, I was 13 years old and said, who's Bob Dylan? It was Dylan's first album. And he handed it to me and it said to John Bob or, you know, Dylan had signed it because he knew Dylan in the village. And then about whatever, five months later, October of 63, Dylan came to Syracuse to play for a core meeting. And uh, my, I went with my teacher and we got to go backstage afterwards and I got to shake Dylan's hand. And this was at the height of the whole times era changing, blown in the wind. All, wow. I mean, all that stuff. And he had these really long fingernails, I remember, because, you know, he had to pick the guitar. And then afterwards, we were invited over to his, uh, his hotel room, which is across the street from the theater. Oh. And here I am, like 13 years old. And Dylan comes up to me and says, and there's a kind of heavyset guy there who must have been Albert Grossman. And Dylan came over to me and said, would you like something to drink? Would you like something to drink? Maybe he said it like that. Anyway, sorry, pardon my bad. And I said, I'll have a Coke. And he went down the hall and bought a Coke, you know, the cold bottle. And, wow. And then we were issued out, because I was issued out with my uh, teacher's wife because they were probably going to do controlled substances or something. So it was a good way to start the early part of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. pretty incredible <laughs> yeah he was like the sweetest guy oh would you like something to drink sure you know I've anyway told- uh I've- so i'm a fan of all literally all the areas except kind of late latish 80s where he just kind of lost lost the muse and you know i'm in love with the ugliest girl in the world is one of the songs from that era <laughs> not, not a high point in his career <laughs> but you stick with him you know yeah that's right I've told O'Teal many times, and I think I've said it on this podcast even, about how his early stuff, when I listened to him when I was like 11, 12, and I was listening to the, like the Times They Are Changing and his first album and hearing the songs and the stories, it was like a, an audible history lesson about yeah. people that, and I think that's what I love so much about bluegrass and, and you know, the, the roots music is that it's like telling a story. Every, every song is like a, an auto, like a biography. Right. And you really get to learn about a body of people you don't know because of the music and the way that the lyrics are so, you know, the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll and God on our side and all these incredible tunes that were, you know, in my, the four walls of my town didn't, it's not, that wasn't my reality. So right. it's really amazing to have that as a gift at such a young age to like have music really be your, your history book. Yeah. Oh Yeah especially God on our side, which is sort of a history lesson. And it still fits today. I mean, that, that's one of those songs that you can keep adding lyrics to all the way up to yeah. you know, literally today. And then Masters of War, still applicable today. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty incredible. And speaking of a history lesson, um, when I got turned on to Give Me the Banjo, that documentary that you were the musical consultant for, right. that was a life-changing I got into that and throw down your heart at the same time. Can you tell me how that came about doing that documentary? Yeah. Um, I had this show that I was doing called world turning. I had an album called world turning, which was this history of the banjo. And I decided to, you know, do it on stage. So, um, because I had some slave narratives, I had, a, and I could really couldn't afford to have a whole band and like two or three different, uh, narrators. So I, I found at various times, uh, a few different uh, women, uh, African-American women, who would do the slave narratives and then would do quotes from Earl Scruggs. And it was like kind of this racial bending kind of thing. But um, anyway, so this guy named Mark um, Fields, 
who was uh, a producer at this local NPR station, NPR, PBS station in, in New Jersey, um, asked me to do a little banjo playing down there, which I did. And then he said, and I mentioned this history of the banjo show, and he said, oh. And I, it was right at the time I was uh, doing something in the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, in the city, um, doing that show there for this afternoon concert series. And he said, why don't I film this for our PBS station? So he did. And one th and that's how he got into the banjo and the history of the banjo. And then he really got into it and decided to, he wanted, he's a documentarian also. And so he decided, let's, let's do this thing. And uh, so we did. And that's kind of it. I was his musical consultant and I knew various people. And because I knew them, they would do the interview with him. You know, I gave him credibility for certain, in certain situations, that sort of thing. And uh, as, as with any documentary you watch, you go, oh, why'd they do that? Why, why didn't they do this instead? You know, and I feel that way about that documentary. I think it's great. I mean, he did the, all the heavy lifting with it. I did some. But, um, you know, if it was my, if I was the main guy, I would have done it a little differently. Uh, but that's, and that's nothing against Mark. That's, just, that's his vision, and we followed that. But it's, what, what, what is one of the things you would have done differently? Well... I would have covered more ground. He made it more personality-based. He would talk about Charlie Poole or, you know, passing uh, on Bela, et cetera, et cetera, these various, you know, important people. And in, in, uh, he had a thing on Pete Seeger, all very important. But as, as he pointed out, um, Ken Burns had whatever, eight to ten uh, two-hour shows to, to cover the Civil War, to cover four years, in a sense, whereas we had, you know, 300 years to cover in an hour and 10 minutes. So you just can't do the whole thing. And he did a remarkable job. And, uh, you know, we were lucky to get some great interviews with people uh, and great historical material. So, I mean, I shouldn't even be saying I would do it differently, but, you know, it's just... No, no, it's all right. I mean, if, if for me, not knowing, you know, just as I somebody just learning about it for the first time it was pretty transformational just because uh it just laid it all out you know yeah. chronologically right and i could see myself you know i'm sitting there holding my banjo watching this looking at all these really old pictures of black people playing banjo and you know uh it it it, it really it was cathartic you know yeah. yeah well i mean i think it's important for people that don't know about the banjo oh wow here's this whole thing laid out so i'm, I'm being you know very picky when i said what i said because i think it's it is absolutely great what he did yeah yeah i mean most black people i you know that like i had to be reminded oh yeah i do remember seeing black guys in new orleans like jazz bands playing yeah. like a four-string banjo. oh yeah like i had to be not like i hadn't seen it but you just always if you're black you pretty much associate the banjo with racists sure <laughs> you know it's just that's just the way it is you know so watching that documentary and you know of course the minstrel part of it it's obviously why that happened you know right. and probably why it fell off in popularity in the black community just all the blackface that was done but you know people like dom flemins who i met after hooking up with you and, and watching these documentaries and stuff kind of connected those dots for me. And it was really, and you know, my people, my grandfather comes from Durham, North Carolina, where all those black banjo players are. Yeah. It's in my, 
it's in my DNA. Like, I, I don't think it was accidental. Right. You know? You're onto it. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWool. For more than 25 years, SmartWool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. Yeah, yeah I, I, um, I interviewed Taj Mahal uh, you know, about the banjo for Banjo Newsletter. And, uh, and he was talking about that, how it's like watermelons or something, banjos, it's, you know, it's got that, that horrible, you know, connotation. And, uh, but he said, hey, I love the banjo. And it's a black instrument originally, so why, why would I not do that? Yeah, like hearing, hearing him list, play Shady Grove. Oh, man. It's just like one of the greatest things in the world. Oh, yeah, he's a great band. He's, he's not like a finesseful banjo player, but he just lays it down, just beats yeah. on it. It's so wonderful. He's one of my favorite banjo players. Even less. The actual physical, um, like the size and development of the banjo going back, was yeah. it a larger instrument in the early days? Was it? I don't know. I'm at like well, some I'm, of those gourd ones are pretty big, aren't they? And too little. Oh, look at he like just so happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow! Funny. Funny you should ask. Funny you should ask. Exactly. Wow! Great Check sound that out. That thing has too, man. Yeah, there's this, one track on your on. Uh, well, now it's called. It's not his uh, favorite land. Only hope, but yeah. Yeah, I I heard one track that is that the banjo. It had a gourd banjo. I heard it was fretless. It's actually. This banjo that I played that on, wow. uh, yeah. uh, a replica of an 1840s banjo, which would have been used in minstrel shows. Look at that yeah. head. Uh, it's a pretty exact replica made by a guy, originally in the 1840s, made by a guy named Boucher, or Boucher, who was a drum maker in Maryland. Yeah. And I saw an early one of his banjos in this museum in Richmond, Virginia, at some exhibit years ago. And it was this, but without the drum body, but a, a gourd body. Ah. I thought I heard that gourd body on the instrument. Yeah, but the instrument you're hearing on that album is, is that this, one. Is this yeah. one? Yeah, it sounds like a gourd. It's funny. It does. Well, it's it's got that fretless thing, but this thing. Um, Interesting. If I can, I play a couple of things on this. Please do, man. Oh my god, I was just about to ask you to. With your permission, maybe I can. Um, let's see. Check that out. Um. The uh, very first banjo instruction book was written in 1855 by a guy named Thomas Briggs. Was, it, was that claw hammer? Well, it basically is claw hammer. It's fretless. Which is really the quote African way of playing this yes. rhythmic downstroke. Even though people up picked also. I'm going to do two things, one of which is a tune called Juba, which is that, you know, hand padding thing that I can't do. But uh, there's also the name of the first black to perform in minstrel shows. And as you know, but maybe your audience doesn't, that, that blacks would 
be in blackface, which is in minstrel shows, which is totally bizarre and just beyond. Beyond, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, it was also the name of a, a very active dance that was done in the West Indies, apparently, uh, by enslaved Africans down there. Hey, you hear that in Mr. Charlie, that Grateful Dead song, Juba Juba, Juba. Juba. Yeah. Bully, looking Juba. high, looking low. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this, and it, it has a fairly simple melody and different rhythmic aspects to it. And then the second tune is the earliest example that I've found of black banjo music dating from no later than 1850 and played by a street musician in Elmira, New York, of all places. Hmm. And we don't know his name or the name of the tune either, but um, in his two finger pick, picked with two fingers as opposed hmm. to this downstroke, because that downstroke style is basically claw hammer. And I've learned how to do this out of that 1855 book. People tried to show me claw hammer style. I could never get it. And I finally got this book and the guy said, make your hand into a small fist and extend your index finger out. And it worked. <laughs> I learned how to do it from that. Wow. I yeah. need to try that because I still can't get it. And I always wonder if it's just because I bite my nails, but I think you might have just unlocked the key. Yeah, just like a you know, fist. loose, relaxed fist and then in extend your index finger. I mean, some people use the middle finger, but index is how this guy did it. And, uh, and just have your hand relaxed. This really great claw hammer player named uh, Dwight Diller said, just kind of throw your hand at the, at the strings in a very relaxed fashion. But anyway, so I'll play Juba and then this, uh, this earliest example of black banjo music that's at least written down. such a meditative yeah instrument man it's so percussive <laughs> do you I, it, it seems as if like the neck sort of has a little bit of a dip where it meets the body is that where you're strumming mainly yeah, i i let's see where do we do it yeah yeah that's where i strum and a lot of old time wow. banjo banjos have that also this scalloped away thing there yeah wow that's beautiful look at the work yeah, on really that incredible that's, instrument. 
Wow. That, is that, that a common? Are oh, you go ahead? No, 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 no. Go ahead, Otil. I was just going to say I've I watched a video of you recently uh, that I hadn't seen before, and it was a real short thing. You were just talking about taking the banjo and just hitting one string at a time. Oh right. You know? And it reminded me of uh, how I really got hooked onto that meditative sound because I uh, when I had Jess's banjo. I didn't want to use picks because, you know, I've always played with my fingers. Sure. And so, but I was playing it like a bass and it just wasn't, you know, (laughs) there were picks in the house, you know? Right. And I was watching TV one day and I just grabbed a pick and man, I hit the string with the pick and it was like time stopped. And it was exactly what you mentioned that video. I would just hit this. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to learn this three finger style because that sound, like I didn't know anything about claw hammer or gourd banjos or anything like that at the fretless banjos at that point. Right. Um, not really. I mean, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know. Um, and it just, I mean, it was such a life changer. Yeah. And, and I just, the, the figure you were playing when you started adding the pull off, yeah. In there and I was like, oh man, I remember when I first was starting to get all that together and forward roll the backward roll and adding a pull off here and there, but it was just that sound that literally uh it's the first time that I like found peace inside. We we lived in Lawrenceville and we were right by Black Angus Cow Farm and I was playing my banjo and I had kind of gotten some stuff together at that point, you know, I was writing tunes. And I'm out there playing banjo and looking at the cows, and all of a sudden this huge grin just broke out on my face. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit, you're picking and grinning right now. <laughs> it was just like, you know, it was the, the cliche. And I, was just yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, it's just so true, you know. But what a healing thing. And it really reoriented. Like, that's when I started being very irritated by uh, music being too loud, like electric music, because right. I was so used to sitting there and playing acoustic, even though banjos is like the loud, yeah, you know, compared to loud drummer, right? Exactly. (laughs) But hearing you play that, I just it just brought me back to like that. What a meditation it is! It's something very spiritual about it. I don't know what it is. Whether it's the rhythmic, the always being in motion thing, and the tone and the what you know. It 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 does that 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 gourd ba- banjo sounds like if you close your eyes you can almost hear it coming out of like an old victrola yeah like it's got that like just it it sounds like history it sounds like humid in a way and and it's really amazing yeah. well i went to this they had these gatherings um called the tennessee banjo institute in 1988 1992 and they've got all these banjo players together they have these things these days you know, more instructional. And there were some workshops, but they had like Taj Mahal, Ralph Stanley. They brought these two guys up from Cuba who were banjo players. What? Brought a couple of guys from Africa, you know, with chorus. So is it, was the Cuban thing still like the Afro-Cuban rhythm? Is it in that same thing or is it a different thing? It's been so long, I don't remember. I really yeah. don't. I, mean, I saw them and I was like, yeah, crap, these guys are from Cuba doing this. <laughs> wow. They had banjo in Cuba. But everywhere slaves went, it's probably banjo in Brazil and all South oh, yeah. America Absolutely. and such. All through. But in this day and age, you'd think it had died out. And these guys were old at the time. I, I don't remember what they played. And it wasn't like there was a backing group to kind of have that rhythm behind them. So yeah. I, I just don't remember. But it was 
Um, and I'm forgetting where I was going with this. Whatever we'd said. Just so all, all different kinds of people were there at that. Yeah. Gathering. I can't remember what brought me to that. Were there, well, we were talking about how that sounds like an old Victrola. Like it almost oh, sounds. Like Victrola. Right. Um, and so that, that, that's where I first found out about minstrel banjo, about this. And just talk about the tone of the instrument, because um, in the 1991, there were guys there who had this book I just mentioned from 1855, and they had banjos, original banjos like this from the 1840s and 50s, fretless, and um, they were playing these minstrel tunes, uh, which of course the whole thing's offensive, but the first guy, that, the first white to play, um, to play, first white to play banjo, supposedly, uh, was a guy named Joel Walker Sweeney, who grew up in Appomattox, Virginia. And he, um, he loved the sounds of the, the gourd bonzas that were played, bonzas is what they were called, uh, the local enslaved people. And so he found a gourd, made a rough hewn neck, yanked some hair from the family horse's uh, tail or mane, <laughs> strung it together with beeswax for strings and killed the family cat for the head. And, and they had a banjo, you know? And then oh his mother destroyed, I, I tell the story, it's, it's one of my stories that I tell when I'm doing gigs, but, and his mother was none too pleased and destroyed that bonza. So he made another one and killed the second family cat. So his mother said, okay, you're a banjo player, go ahead. Uh, but he loved the stories and the music and the dances. And then he, he was one of the first people, you know, he started one of the first minstrel bands. And he went in and performed for Queen Victoria, the crowned heads, heads of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there were whites that were, they just loved the music and respected it. But then it turned into this other thing, you know, obviously. Yeah. But I could play a couple tunes on this since I've got it here. Yeah, I'd love to hear something on that. Yeah, please. That I'll, would I'll be... play a, couple, a few from this, um, uh, from this 1855 book. These are all tunes from that book. And a guy who's, I mean, I'm really into this stuff, but not as deeply as other people, because I have all these other things I'm into on the banjo, but guys that are really into it, this one guy said that the tunes that had, that where you're only using four strings, like this short top string, and then the bottom three, those are probably from enslaved Africans. And once they had all four, if, the, if you're playing tunes with all four strings, then those are probably more like they're they're Celtic tunes in here too, like Devil's Dream yeah. was in because the Irish were coming in at this exact same time from the potato famine in the 1840s. So it's kind of this confluence of black and white influences. And they said that about minstrels minstrel shows. It was like the first America's first popular entertainment, and it combined stringed instruments uh, and had and fit violins, which were you know this European influence, but it had bones and tambourine so it had this rhythmic thing it was this kind of they, they would some people say it's the first rock and roll going back that far black and white influences coming together so anyway uh this is a i'll start with a tune called the grapevine twist which is a tune that joel sweeney used to play awesome sorry i gotta go into my <laughs> there we go Thank you. 
amazing. Great, I, can I ask both of you a question as, as a bass player and a banjo player, fretless versus fretted? I mean, I, I play guitar, so I've never played a fretless guitar. But do you feel a certain, like, is there a difference in your, I mean, there's obviously a difference in the sound, but the way that you approach it, is there like a unique way of, of like, do you play two different ways when you're playing with a fretless and with a fretted? That might be the most ignorant question, but I'm just wondering. Oh, Teal, why don't you? I mean, I'm terrified of fretless. I, I have a hard time keeping it in tune. And I think uh, I would approach it differently now, like be less worried about that and just dive in and really, it's just the amount of time you got to put in on it. Um, and I didn't, put a lot of time in because I was on the road most of the time and I just wanted to take one bass out and not have a bunch of basses and stuff get stolen and broken and bust. I just have like one go-to thing. Plus Jocko was such a huge, everybody was sounding like Jocko and I'm just like, man, we, I need to go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. But fretless is much more difficult for me. But if you spend the time on it, you know, I mean, obviously, Tony, you put a lot of time into it, you know. Well, I mean, the thing is, in these earliest books, you wouldn't really get above the fifth fret. What would be the fifth fret? It was all down here. And then, wow. and, um, you don't mind me just ranting about banjo history. No, go back. <laughs> That's what I did. Uh, there was a book that came out in 18, it was either 1860 or 1865. And this guy, the first 30 pages or so were called The Banjo Style, which is this, that kind of claw hammer yeah. downstroke style. And then um, in page 33 or whatever, it talked about the guitar style, which is suddenly picking. And obviously people had picked in Africa, you know, yeah. played how they played. But, um, but in an official way, in a book, it was called the guitar style. And that kind of began the move towards um, adding more like light classical music and as you get into the late 1800s rags and marches and that sort of thing um and at that point in that same book they had uh, a schematic for where you would put frets on the banjo oh. because before that you know they're like i mean you have this like little point here reference points yeah yeah reference points uh and the peg here the fifth string peg yeah. As a reference point, but really it was once frets came in and the first frets came in right around 1860, 1865, but they would be flush frets. They didn't lay wooden frets or might be a piece of yarn. And then eventually uh -huh. they got into the metal frets. But starting in 1860, things started, oh, now we could play up here too, because we have markers. We have ways to do that. Nice. But the very first finger picking song in a book was the New York March, if I can remember it. Oops. I Dark think it's all. tuned differently, huh? Oh, yeah, the tuning, I should have mentioned that. I'm just going to strum this. That's the regular tuning right there. Yeah, and that's tuned yeah. to a G chord. And this tuned is to a G? G is a full G chord. And it's high and metallic and all that. And this is tuned to a D chord. The very first banjo, that banjo instruction book from 1855 I've been talking about. It was in D, and the four strings tuned down to G, a fourth. That's what got me that that fourth down. Awesome. You got that. Yeah. And these are gut strings, and it's a, a, a skin head, so it's got this really funky sound. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, so this finger-picking tune is called the New York March, first finger-picking tune in the book. That's yeah. so cool. I know. It's a cute little thing. How how big is your collection right now of of banjos? How many are you uh how many do you have? I just counted them. I got fifteen. <laughs> what do I need with all these banjos? Well here, you know, you've got this gourd banjo and you've got this this thing here. You know, for the historical purposes, I have um an 1883 Fairbanks coal banjo with ivory pegs that this woman gave me. I did this, this Banjo History World Turning Show here in town. Uh, my wife used to have a concert series, so it was nepotism. I got to play all the time because she hired me. And uh, there was a thing in the paper about it, and this woman uh, saw the review and whatever and, and called me up a couple of days later and said, um, my husband died recently. He was a banjo player. He had these two banjos. He had a zither banjo, which is this British kind of banjo, where there'd be no short string. There'd be a like a little channel in this under the fingerboard where the string would go through and then come out at the top here. Um, but I have this other, and this other banjo, which was this 1883 banjo. And she said, you know, I'm not, I don't have that much longer to live, but my, my children aren't musicians. My son's a drummer. And, and she really said that. <laughs> They're not musicians. My son's a drummer. So they would appreciate it. So I'm giving these to you. So anyway, I've got that. And then I recently got... That's so wild. Got this thing, which is... It's a low-tuned banjo that Bela developed called The Missing Link. <laughs> and it's, it's a cool... I've, I've been, you know, once quarantine, quarantine started, and, you know, since March, I've, I've written, like, you know, five or six tunes on this thing because it's just fun to play. Can we hear one? Sorry? Can we hear one? Yes, you may. At no extra cost. <laughs> Not so low. Ah, let's see. I have to remember where this goes. Thank you. 
That is beautiful. That's such a, like, such a deep sound on that one, too. That's so such incredible. a... What's it called? The Missing Link? The Missing Link. Yeah. <laughs> because they have, like, these minstrel banjos. Uh, down, well, they're octave banjos. There's a cello banjo that's an octave down. And uh, people play in G, of course. And then down in E, where John Hartford used to play. So you get all these different things. This is kind of in between everything. I think that's why it's called that. Super cool. Oh, man, it just, and really nice inlays too, right? I mean, beautiful, wow. gorgeous. Oh, I'm, I'm in the process of moving right now and all my banjos are packed up. <laughs> and boy, with all the stress, I like really need to- You're just, jonesing. Like, yeah, yeah, I just want to get that soothing, like running water feeling again. Picking <laughs> and grinning. Yeah, yeah man. Picking and grinning. So how did you first meet Bela? When did you guys first hook up? I told you I'd answer that question an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> A long time ago. Um, I was living in New York, New York City. Uh, where was I at that point? I was on the Upper West. I guess I was on the Upper West Side at that point. Anyway, uh, and this, and I was given one-on-one -on -one lessons. This was like 1973. I just moved to New York from Syracuse, and this kid calls me up wanting banjo lessons. So, okay, come on up. And uh, I was living in the Bronx. That's what it was. I was living next to Yankee Stadium. That's right. How could I forget? Um, anyway, wow. literally a block from Yankee Stadium. 73? 73. When they closed the stadium to build a new one. Uh -huh. So I couldn't even go to games. Yeah. Damn. Bummer. But anyway, uh, this kid calls up and he wants lessons. He comes up and it's a 16-year-old kid who could play fiddle tunes on the banjo and could play some Scruggs style, some bluegrass. Mm -hmm. And uh, his name was Bela Fleck. He was 16 years old. Wow. And he'd, he was taking lessons from a guy named Mark Horowitz, uh, uh, in uh, Staten Island, I guess. And, and Mark was a really good, and still is a really good player, but uh, he was taking lessons from him, but somehow Bela had gotten a hold of my first album, Bluegrass Light, and wanted to learn the tunes on there, these kind of weird, crazy tunes. And Mark would have to learn them each week to show him. And then he said, why don't you just take lessons from Tony? He lives in the Bronx. <laughs> and you know, so I showed him some of these tunes and then he would ask me to like, I would like jam out on a straight ahead bluegrass tune for like two or three minutes and he would record it and then come back the next week playing it note perfectly what I just had improvised, wow. you know. And uh, after a couple of months, it was like, this guy doesn't really need lessons anymore. And uh, then he moved to Boston and learned about jazz and then he was gone forever, you know. Just, <laughs> yeah. He's unbelievable. Yeah, he's totally. He's, he's the greatest I mean, guy in the world and, and just, yeah. you know, you can the, make 
it's for the greatest banjo player in the world. It's just like ridiculous. The first Bonnaroo, I remember I stumbled across, like I was coming from something going to something else. And, you know, I was on, my head was in the clouds and, uh, you know, for whatever substances and reasons. And I was walking (laughs) by and I heard Bela and I just was like, and I went over and I mean, literally it was just, yeah, the banjo is a, like O'Teal, like you said, and like percussion, percussion instruments and how it can take you and put you into a whole other world. But being there and watching it and seeing how it's like the movement, but the, the movement ratio to the sound coming out of the instrument yeah. is like mind boggling. It's like you're watching his hands and it's like, he sounds like he has nine hands. Yeah, I know. He's ridiculous. And it, it is, it's the sound. That's what it is. It's the sound of the thing. God, so cool. I, I, I've written these instruction books, and for my site, I've done a whole bunch of interviews with people. And it's, it gives me insight to see how other people think. But and I, you know, you always ask, oh, how'd you get into it? It was the sound. I just heard that sound, that metal against metal, you know, on a regular, a regular bluegrass banjo, and it's just like, you know, how can you, how can you beat? You know? crazy it's like okay i want to play that i had that same feeling like if you ever see earl scruggs you know like the lightning fast just amount of stuff going compared to like what his hands even when he's like detuning the things it still doesn't look like he's doing that much and there's just like a machine gun yeah on you know and it's unbelievable at the same time it's so incredibly soothing yeah, Dude. he's so relaxed, you know, just kind of with this little bit of a smile on his face. I got these old videos from the late 50s, early 60s, the Martha White shows on YouTube, and you just watch him play. And he kind of, while he's playing, he looks out of the, at the audience and just kind of this little bit of a smile. And, you know, it's, it's like a magic smile. trick, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then here, yeah, I'm just killing it here. You know, speaking of that, I, 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 there's a, and I recommend for listeners to check it out. There's, a, there's a, a litany of videos of you on YouTube playing, but one of my favorites was you and Grisman sitting down and playing. Oh. And he's just, and, and he's so animated and it's literally like you two are having a conversation and you can see him lean in and kind of look like, like look under you until yeah. you'd look at him and you're he's almost kind of trying to look yeah. away. Yeah. Cause he'll get like under your face yeah. when, when you guys are playing back and forth and just, yeah. it's, it's, it's a conversation and it's that, you know, like that rag, like Nashville skyline rag was one of my favorite things to listen to as a kid on Dylan on Nashville skyline. And yeah, yeah hearing that like you know you leave it for him to pick up and then it's like the ball goes around you know and that's so fun to watch the two of you especially because he's playing with him must be quite it must have been quite a trip huh oh yeah yeah I, i've known him he was at the very first he was at that very first bluegrass festival walking around with a mandolin instruction book that he'd written that never came out and uh and then i saw him playing with red allen in pennsylvania somewhere this the same guy who said i smoked marijuana last night that guy uh, in like the early seventies. So I've, I've known him. In fact, uh, after the, after seeing him at, um, that Fincastle festival in 65, David had a, uh, record label called silver bell records. And he put out a record with the New York ramblers. Uh, and it was a single, it was a 45 that I saw in sing out magazine for sale and a little, little tiny ad. Oh, it's bluegrass. I'll buy it. And uh, it came in the mail, and I loved it. It was one of the songs was New York Ramble, and it was Grisman's band from New York City. And 
New York Ramble became Doggy Mountain Breakdown many years later. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, Earl Scruggs to play on that, and Tony Rice and Daryl Anger and those guys. But anyway, that was on there. And then he put out a second single by a guy named Frank Wakefield, this wonderful mandolin player. And then I went to see David at uh, this Red Allen gig and said, oh, man, I love those Silver Bell records. He said, what's your name? Tony Trishka. I said, I remember you because he'd only sold like 10 copies of these things. He <laughs> remembered the name Trishka. So it's a weird <laughs> name. So uh, I, know, I go, go back a long way, David. <laughs> Did you ever meet uh, Garcia at any of those banjo festivals? Was he hanging out at any of those? No, when, when he, he did a thing at, um, uh, I can't remember, there's some theater, it was a Broadway, it was Jerry on Broadway. Oh, yeah, one fun, yeah. in, a, in a theater on Broadway, and Bill Graham was putting it on. I remember he was walking through the aisles before the show. But anyway, it was half bluegrass and half electric. It was oh. half acoustic, and, J and Jerry was playing guitar. There was no banjo. What the hell? What's that about? Oh, my God. But anyway... It was supposed to be bluegrass, but then he had the yeah. second half, and it was great, you know. You must have been like, let me just get up there. Let me just get up there. Yeah, I know. I was champing at the bit. Oh, you know I was. Come on! And a friend of mine was playing fiddle. A guy named Kenny Kosak was playing fiddle with him, and, and so I got to go backstage, and I met Jerry for, you know, five minutes, and he was just wearing a T-shirt. I thought he dressed up a little bit more, but anyway. Uh, no, he was just sitting there, Buddha-like, and he was really nice, and I think he had my... Yeah of my albums or something and said come out and visit me sometime and oh. i said oh how will i find you he said you'll find me <laughs> and <laughs> that's so stupidly, i never made it out to see him you know oh uh, died it was you know maybe. yeah i was really like when i heard olden in the way i was like man you know i mean at this point i had been hanging out with really great bluegrass players yeah and i was like man he's really good. Like he knows his stuff. And then, you know, then I found out much later, Oh, that was his first instrument. I was like, okay, well, that, well yeah. yeah. Well, pedal steel, sense, you know, <laughs> and his pedal steel too. The, the reason why Tony, I asked you if you knew it was the banjo when you first heard it was, I remember listening to like new riders stuff and olden in the way and American beauty and working all that stuff. And it was like, I'd hear mandolin, I'd hear pedal steel, some banjo in the old, like early dead dark stars, uh, the dark star studio version had banjo at the end of it. And yeah. I didn't know what any of it was. I didn't know what, what is that, you know? And then I'd learn what they were Right. where pedal steel was, you were basically playing a table saw. It looked like yeah. to me, but uh, <laughs> yeah, just the, that's the beauty of being a fan of the grateful dead and fish was that I learned so much Norman Blake, ginseng Sullivan, yeah. a big fish cover and Del McCrory played at one of their festivals. And oh, I love Del so much. I got Del to know so, so much from those two bands. Like they were the channels that opened up, like here's jazz, here's Fela Kuti, here's right. Del, here's wild stuff, man. Yeah. It's really the cool. Kingston Trio was my entrance to bluegrass. He gets really popular, pretty shiny, white, folky band. And oh, where do I hear more of this? Oh, listen to Earl Scruggs. Oh, okay. Listen to Bill Monroe. Listen to the Stanley Brothers and get yeah. deeper into it. Deeper. Thinking about Jerry's banjo playing, he was good with No Two Ways, with uh, Olden in the Way. He was really good. He was even better like in 64, you can go on, uh, I don't know why I was going on the line, as you kids say, and um, on, on the YouTube. Logging on? Uh, lo I lo <laughs> on the information superhighway that Al Gore invented and um, heard this uh, and found this, uh, it was like a lesson that Jerry was giving to somebody, like in really? 64, and he was burning it down. I'm gonna find that, that's the year I was born too. Really fast, intricate, amazing stuff. 
really crazy. And someone gave me this tape of him playing. Um, I'm going to see if I can play this. Uh, playing in some pizza parlor. And it doesn't say where it's from. It's probably some pizza parlor in California. Probably Magoo's. Palo Alto or something. Palo Alto, wherever. The home of the first dead gig. There were like 10 people in the audience. And, you know, I don't even know who the rest of the band was, but we'd like to get our banjo player, Jerry, up to play a song. And uh, he was going to call it Sweat Socks, but he decided to call it Jerry's Breakdown. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I and know Jerry's, Jerry's Breakdown. Jerry's Breakdown yeah. on Olden in the Way, but it's different than this. I, I, I was not prepared to play this, but let's see if I can remember this. Here's regular G tuning. But you tune say down and you get G minor. We're going to need the beard cam. Okay, here we go. Let's see if I can get through this. Beard cam. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> ah. We needed this. I, I miss live music so much. I heard some little scrugisms in there too. On the bottom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. It's pretty not note for note, but pretty close to note for note the way he played it. That's beautiful. You can remember that off the top of your head. Yeah. All the bazillion banjo tunes you got crammed in there. I know. And as I get older, I don't know how I keep it all together. And anything you ever hear about Jerry too is that he never had, never was without his guitar or his banjo. Like he just had it on him. So it was like a, you know, twenty four seven. He just had like a third arm to him. I know we don't. I know that we've. I don't want to take up too much. Do do we? Do we have a minute? Are you? Is anybody else in a rush to? I've got to I probably actually got to go. Cause no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, you know, this is too much fun. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should do this again because now I'm like, I wish I had my banjo so I could show you. I wish you, you did know, too. Little things I've been working on. It's not, you know, I, I can't wait to get with you again, man. And uh, Anytime. just hang and take some more lessons and just, uh, if just I can soak f- it up. We if can I can find a lefty, Tony, I'll uh, – I'll, I'll let me know if you find a lefty laying around. In your are there are there any left-handed banjo players out there? I've never seen one. Yeah, I've had a couple on my site, but there was a guy named Don Weinberger who played with Bill Monroe in 1964. Whoa! So, and you know, that's the only the one I the only one I know of who was like professional. But the, yeah, there are various people. I knew this one guy who was a right-handed banjo player, taught at the Folklore Center in New York City on 6th Avenue, and um, 
he taught guitar and banjo, and I used to give him some lessons. And then he had nerve problems in his right hand, so he had to learn how to play left-handed, got left-handed and learn how to play backwards. You know, if I try to play backwards, I was like, oh, man. Yeah, man. yeah, no, I can't. I can play, <laughs> I can play guitar. I, I had a righty guitar yeah. forever, and I was just like, I'm horrible at guitar. And then one time I flipped it over and was like, oh. I, this is how I have to do it, but the guitar's wrong. <laughs> I'm right, 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 but the guitar's wrong. Yeah, and then it was just, you know, my parents were like, we can't afford another guitar. You just play that one and stink right, until right. I could figure out how to do it. But It yeah, took me know, forever to try to get just the thump, the picks at all. And then as a bass player, for the, the top string to be the high string and not the lowest note was just like, so yeah. harsh, you know, oh, so wow. I'm getting used to like thumbing this high string. So to turn it around, I would just be like, forget it. I can't <laughs> do it. I just, I tap. Yeah, yeah. No, it's crazy. Insane. You'd have to be desperate to want to learn to do it. <laughs> you couldn't do it any other way. It would have to be that way. <laughs> oh, Talking. Man, thank you so much, dude. Yeah. Thank you. Will you come back and do this again? Will you come back and do this again with us? Because I have yeah. a 10 million more questions I want. We didn't even get into so much stuff yeah so, I know. me too i wish i wasn't moving and homeschooling my child right now and like yeah you must be going crazy moving, oh. I, I swore i'd die in this house i'll never move again <laughs> and uh to have to when do you leave are you moving tomorrow or no uh friday is when they take everything out this won't air like right when we're doing yeah. it but yeah it's two days from now so it's uh yeah, we're in the thick of it. We're maybe the, if I could turn this <laughs> this I computer around, you can see what's on the other side. Tony, maybe like, oh, man. maybe you could take us out. Maybe you could play us out. Everyone, thanks for listening, and check out everything Tony Triska online. Where at TonyTriska.com is yep. the website. TonyTriska.com is my website, and then uh, you can go to the Tony Triska School of Banjo. Put that in there if you want. Yeah. Thank you guys, Mike Oteil. This was a joy. Honor. Honor. To your technical staff also. To them also. Thank you guys. The whole team. Tune in next week, everyone. All right. Um, so here we go. This is, uh, how about uh, uh, Nashville Skyline Rag? Yeah. Yeah, let's favorite. do that. Can I, can I drop the F-bomb real fast? Hell yeah. I've, no, I've, never, I've never told this story out, out but <laughs> since he's passed, I was talking to Earl Scruggs on the phone one time about something, and he started talking about his banjo book. He had this, it was one of the first banjo books out in 68, I mean, of the more modern era, in 68, 69. And he said that, you know, I was hanging out at home, and, and the, the editor called for the book and said, what should we call this? So we call, and I'm on the phone with Earl Scruggs, who's like 81 at the time or something. And he says, yeah, this, the editor called and said, what, what should we call this book? Should it be um, um, Earl Scruggs, uh, Three Finger Style? And I'm on the phone with my hero, Earl Scruggs, and, and Earl says, you know what I, I thought? I thought, what the fuck? It's Scruggs Style. <laughs> and Scruggs Earl Scruggs said, what the fuck? What the me? fuck? Yes! I'm so in with Earl that he would say that. I'll never <laughs> wash this ear again. Uh, exactly. I haven't. I, I have a little cantilever thing over my ear. All right. And this is kind of Earl's version of Nashville Skyline Rag. Sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, O'Toole. <laughs> Thank you.
Yes. Thank you, everybody. Check out everything Tony Trishka online and come back next week for another episode of Comes a Time. We love you guys. Peace. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.